Please turn with me, if you will, in your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Now, we're going to consider together verses 7 through 10, but so that we can see the context, I'd like to read with you from the start of the chapter of Ecclesiastes 9. Now, as we do, don't be alarmed at the start of the chapter. It's not, it doesn't start out in the most thankful way. But what we need to remember is that Solomon is writing in Ecclesiastes with this question in mind, what is the profit to man? In all of the labor at which he toils in his life under the sun. So he's talking about our life here on earth. A a life lived in a world that is frankly filled with sin and with brokenness. And Solomon, he started this book by recognizing the what our pew Bibles render as the vanity of life. That word... It's the word you would use to describe the mist in the morning that quickly dissipates as the sun rises. It's the word that you would use to describe the breath that comes out of your, out of your lips on a crisp cold morning, how it condenses and quickly evaporates. He recognized that life is a vapor. And what, in the midst of that vapor, what is profitable? What is good? What makes life worth living? And in this part of the book, he's wrestling with the reality of death. Our life under the sun is limited. It comes with an expiration date. Our bodies will soon fail us. And then what will come of it? And how shall we live our life in the midst of that reality? That's the context for what we read here. So, starting at verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 9, Solomon says, For I considered all this in my heart. So that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As, as is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath is as he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, and the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and all their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a, have a share in anything done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which He has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity. For that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Amen. Beloved family of God in Christ. I was talking with someone recently about Thanksgiving plans. That's how the conversation started. What's your plans for Thanksgiving? What are you, what are you doing? How are you filling your day? And, and 
Are you going to church at the start? And we talked about that a bit. And, and in the process, he expressed a pet peeve concerning Thanksgiving sermons. This was someone who grew up in a Reformed church. In the church of his youth, he heard many a Thanksgiving sermon. In the school he attended, or the schools he attended, Thanksgiving sermons abounded. So he had ample evidence to express the prevalence of this pet peeve. And his evaluation was, I hate Thanksgiving sermons that focus on gluttony. He's heard a number of them. Everyone's gathered together for Thanksgiving. They've gotten together. They put the turkey in the oven. They've got the fridge filled with stuff. They've got stuff set out on the porch to keep it cool because the fridge is full. They're ready to go home and to feast together and to celebrate together. And the minister gets up and holds forth on gluttony and the sin of overindulging. And my friend, my friend pointedly declared that at best such sermons are uncharitable. And quite possibly they're just mean-spirited. Well, folks, he wasn't wrong. Gluttony is a sin. But really, it's, it's a habitual sin. Partaking eagerly of a feast on rare occasion is not gluttony, but celebration. And celebration done properly is, in fact, a very good thing. What we're gathered, gathering with our families to do today, if done in the right spirit, should leave us with no guilt. But should, in fact, draw us closer to God. And that's what this text before us is really trying to teach us. You see, Solomon in this book, he's describing his search for meaning in a world where everything seems fast and fleeting and momentary. And what he has found is that there is purpose in life if and only if we receive life and live life in the light of God who gave it. And it's in that Light in that spirit that we receive this text this morning. Here we see how the truly wise of this world show thanks to God by celebrating life under the sun. The truly wise show thanks to God by celebrating life under the sun. That's our theme. And he begins to express that theme really with its most important part. By showing us the calling to enjoy life's blessings because of God's approval. Solomon begins in verse 7 by giving us three commands. Go eat and drink. Go eat and drink. At the start of this chapter, Solomon has, had reminded us vividly, as we saw, of some disturbing facts. He talked about the plight of those who are truly dead in the broader context of this book. He's talking about those who go through life not knowing God, not serving God, actively rebelling against God. But he points out that the same things happen, at least in the way that we see them, to those who are bad, to those who rebel against God, and also to those who are good, to those who worship the Lord. And there's a temptation when we recognize that, to freeze, to kind of stop because we don't know what to do because it doesn't seem like what we do has any good reward, like what we do leads us to anything good and so we don't know what to do. But Solomon says, don't freeze, go. Go forth and live the life God has given you. Enjoy that which God has entrusted to you. 
And that includes the blessings that sustain your life, the food and the drink. Go eat your bread with joy, he says. When the Bible talks about bread, it's talking generically about food, that which sustains the body. So not just bread and crackers, but also the richer fare, the the meat, the casseroles, the almond patties. He's calling us to eat freely of the food that we receive. By all means, enjoy your salad, but maybe put a creamy dressing and some bacon on top of it. Fill your plate with that which God has entrusted to you and do so with joy. Not with guilt, not with fear, but with joy. There is no sin in partaking of that which God has given to us. Obviously, gluttony is bad. Don't overeat, eat to exhaustion every day of your life, but enjoy that which God has given you to eat. And while you're at it, he says, drink your wine with a merry heart. Now, just to be clear, the word he uses there is yayin. It's wine of the same sort that you would get at Hy-Vee, wine and spirits. Wine can be abused. In Isaiah 5, God cursed those who drink until their bottles are empty. He has no regard for those who are heroes at their drinking. But abuse of wine is a sin precisely because it's the abuse of that which God gave as a good gift. He commanded Israel to use part of their tithe at the, the time of feasting to buy good wine. And to drink it together in celebration of God's gift. Psalm 104 says, God gives wine that makes glad the heart of men. So wine along with your bread, food along with your drink, God has given these that we might enjoy. But the thing is, not just everyone can really truly enjoy them. True enjoyment of life's blessings requires knowing that God has already accepted your works. That's the most important part of this verse. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for because God has already accepted your works. He's not saying that God approves of eating and drinking regardless of who you are or how you do it. He's saying instead that we can enjoy truly the gifts that God has given... Because we know God has approved of us, our joy in eating, our merry heart arises from God's approval of us. You see, the world has it backward. They set their feast before them so that they can enjoy life, right? They drink their wine to infuse merriment into their gathering. That's backward. Solomon says, you can eat and you can drink with joy. You can feast with true happiness because of the happiness that's already in you, because of the blessing you've already been given, because God has approved of you. You see, our joy rests not in food and drink. Our joy rests in God. It rests in the living bread broken for us that we might be made whole, in the the Blood of the Savior poured out that we might be cleansed and reconciled to God. We are approved by God if we are trusting in Christ. And if we are trusting in Christ, then we can eat and drink. We can feast with the greatest of joy. This verse recalls an event from Exodus 24. There God called Moses and Aaron and 70 of the elders of Israel to draw near to him. They went up the mountain into the presence of the God who terrified Israel. And there, before the judge who cannot stand the presence of sin, there they feasted before God. 
However, because they were sinful men, Israel's leaders could not feast in the presence of God on their own. They couldn't do it until Moses offered sacrifices, calling the people to trust in the substitute who was to come, in Christ. And then Moses read the covenant of God to them, and the people confessed their faith in God. And then Moses sprinkled blood on the people, purifying them with the blood of the sacrifice, ultimately purifying them through the blood of Christ. It was only after they had confessed and repented of their sin, trusted in Christ, and been cleansed by His blood, that they could enter the presence of God. It was only after they had received Christ through faith that they could enter the presence of God. But when they did, then they could enter with joy. Then they could enter with feasting. You see, justification, being declared righteous before God because of what Jesus has done, that changes everything. Because we're justified, we have peace with God. No longer does He see us as strangers and enemies. No longer are we due His wrath. Because we are justified, God draws us near. He assures us that our judgment has already been paid. And now we've become His very own children because of His Son. Because we partake by faith in the body broken for us and the blood poured out for us, we have been restored to God, we've been given peace, and therefore all that we do has been purified. Our worship and our prayers, our work and our fellowship, and also our celebration before God. It changes everything. Our justification changes the character of our work, it changes the character of our relationships, and it changes the very nature of our celebration. No longer do we celebrate in order to receive joy, now we celebrate in expression of our joy in the Lord. You see, it turns it backward, it turns it inside out, it makes it what it was meant to be. So celebrate, beloved, with your eyes on, the Lord, on what the Lord has done. This afternoon, by all means, eat your food with joy, recalling that God gave the bread of life that you might live truly. Recalling that each morsel you partake of has been given by Him as the gift of your Father to His children. Drink your wine with a merry heart, thinking on the blood of the covenant that cleansed you, and delighting in the fact that God now delights in you. For God has already approved what you do, says Solomon. And that changes everything. That should give you joy greater than, than that infused by any substance this world knows. God has approved what you do because of your faith in Christ. And therefore, you can enjoy the rich blessings of this world. But then Solomon continues, calling us in verses 8 and 9 to embrace life's comforts as God's gifts. Again, he starts with a, a threefold command. The first is, let your garments always be white. Now, what's so significant about that? Well, it's nothing for us. I look around this, this room and I see a number of folks who are wearing white. That's not a big deal for us, right? You go to Walmart, you go to some other store, you buy something that's white. As long as you don't brush up against your car, you're fine. But in ancient Israel, white clothing was hard to come by. Most fabrics are not naturally white. The only thing that you could get that was truly white was linen. And linen was really, really expensive. So you only wore it for truly important events. They were worn by the priests serving in the temple to signify their holiness. 
They were worn by slaves on the day that they received their freedom, and by war heroes when they returned from battle, and by brides on their wedding day, all of it signifying great joy. White garments were for celebration and for worship. And we are to embrace white garments. We are to embrace that celebration because we have every reason to celebrate. And then he says, let your head lack no oil. Oil was a luxury in the ancient Near East for a couple reasons. First of all, it was a moisturizer, which was a great blessing for those working out in the Middle Eastern sun all day. It was also pleasantly scented, covering the fragrance of sun-baked people. And it was relaxing. A luxury much prized in that culture. This is a call to enjoy the luxury that God gives us that delights the senses. And then finally he says, live joyfully with the wife whom you love. He's telling us to not neglect our spouses, which should go without saying. But then as now, Work and family and the pressures of life often consume us. So Solomon emphasizes our need to recall that our spouses need our attention. They need us to spend time with them. Our marriage is important and therefore it must be nurtured. So Solomon, ironically, who probably had the worst marriage life in the history of mankind, calls us to nurture that marriage that God has given to us. Husbands. Take the initiative. Hire a sitter. Plan a a weekend getaway. Take her to a place. Spend time with one another. And listen to what one another have to say. Romance your wife or your husband. And take the time to enjoy that love. Because, brothers and sisters, these comforts that God has given us to embrace... The fine clothes that show our joy, the the bit of luxury that enlivens the senses, the quality time with the wife or husband to whom God has given you. When we enjoy these things, we enjoy the gift that God has given. And notice how Solomon says that. He says... To do these things, let your garments be always white, let your head not lack oil, live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity. Now understand, Solomon is not being sarcastic here. The first time I read that in preparation to preach a number of years ago, I thought, Solomon kind of being a a smart aleck here? Like, yeah, enjoy this stuff now because you're not going to enjoy it for long. It kind of... How it sounds, right? Like the the musing of a bitter old man. But that's not what he's saying. He's simply reminding us of the nature of our time under the sun. Our time here on earth. Our lives in this world, he has shown us throughout this book, is vanity. It's hevel, is the Hebrew word. I I mentioned before, it, it means a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. It quickly fades away. Life is short. Life is sudden. So embrace the comforts that it it offers now because tomorrow is no guarantee. But listen, there's a temptation, a great temptation that comes to us when we embrace these comforts of life. The comforts, whether fine clothes or good food or a, a wife or husband or your work, they're good. But our hearts so often take that which is good and they make them ultimate. 
We make them an end unto themselves, and that makes them an idol. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's good, the human heart can make it an idol, can make it ultimate. Good food is a delight, but enjoyed to extreme, it becomes gluttony, which is rebellion against God. Good, good wine gladdens the heart, but used to an extreme, it brings about drunkenness, which is an offense to God. Your work can be a great reward, or it can enslave you to the desires of the flesh. And likewise, our spouses, our, our kids, our luxuries, our hobbies, our physical pleasures, everything. When those good things become ultimate in our hearts, they displace God. We start to worship and serve them rather than God. We start to ignore the true God in favor of these false gods that our hearts have made. Folks, we must not. However... The solution is not to do away with the comforts. The solution is not to live as a monk in a monastery, doing away with denying ourselves of all the good things of life. That's not what God calls us to do. The solution is to remember who has given these comforts that we enjoy. For this is your portion in life, he says, and in the labor which you perform under the sun. That word portion, it's the word that we use to refer to someone's share of something. Your piece of the pie or of the turkey this afternoon. That's your portion. When Israel came into Canaan, God caused them to divide the land among the tribes. And then to cast lots among the families within the tribes to determine who got which portion of land. That would be their inheritance. That would be their portion. Same word as is used here. And that what that tells us is that these comforts of life that we enjoy. God has provided them uniquely for each one of us. He provides differently for each one of you. Some of you have more financial resources and some have less. Some drive a really nice car and some really just hope the car will get them home from church. Some of you live in large homes and some in small homes. Some of you have prestigious jobs and others... Toil at, at work that no one recognizes. God has allotted, has apportioned to each one of us that which we have received. And He has done so uniquely according to our need and His purposes. And you see, we can't enjoy that. Every bit of it is a blessing from God. I don't care if you're living in a, a one-room shack or a 30-room mansion. Is exactly what God ordained for you. But you can't enjoy those comforts of life. You can't use them properly unless you have your eyes on the one who gave them. So if we're to embrace life's comforts aright, then we must receive them as the gift of God. And to help us do that, God inspired Solomon to list the comforts that point to him as their giver. Let your garments... Look at those again. Let your garments always be white. White garments were seen most commonly on the priests. Emphasizing the holiness of God and the holiness of those who must draw or may draw near to God. They, they signified also victory. The victory that would come about through the ultimate sacrifice whom their sacrifices pointed toward. The sacrifice of Christ. That's why when, when John was 
seeing a vision of heaven, he saw this multitude of those who trusted in the Lord, who had died and gone to be with God in heaven, and they were all wearing white. And Jesus promises in Revelation 3 verse 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. So as we hear Solomon call us to wear white, we're called to learn to celebrate Him who has given us the victory, He who has given us life, He who has made us to be holy, a people who are priestly in this world. And then he says, let your head lack no oil. Now oil was often used for relaxation and moisturizing, but it was also used critically for ordination. When you were consecrating a priest or a king whom God had called to exercise his authority, oil was poured upon their heads. That signified their ordination and it signified the promise of God that his Holy Spirit would guide them and guard them. We too have received an anointing. If we are Christians, if we have faith in Christ, we've received an anointing not of oil, but of the Holy Spirit whom the oil signified. So as we hear Solomon's call, To anoint our heads with oil, we learn to celebrate the Spirit who fills us to will and to work according to God's good pleasure. And then when he says, live joyfully with the wife whom you love. Well, folks, the one who clothes us in white and anoints us with his Spirit, he also calls us his beloved bride. We are the wife whom he has sanctified and cleansed as his own. We are the wife whom he cherishes and fills with his splendor. So as you enjoy life with the wife whose love delights you, you learn to celebrate your most priceless gift, which is the love of God. You see, each one of these comforts calls us to embrace the blessed gifts that God has given Therefore, let us embrace life's comforts this day and every day. But do so with your eyes on the giver. Dress nicely. Indulge in some luxury. Spend time with the spouse whom you love. These things are good in the eyes of God. They've been given to you by God. But be sure as you use these gifts that you recall the love that led God to give them. And that you celebrate His love and give Him glory. Because that's why He gave it. So you would know how much He loves you. Just like you parents give your children gifts that are uniquely suited to them at Christmas or at their birthday. Because you want them to know how much you love them. How much you care about them. How well you know them. So God gives us exactly what we need so that we'll know His love for us. And finally, take that celebration. The celebration you enjoy today, enjoying life's blessings because of God's approval, embracing life's comforts as God's gifts. Take that celebration into your work, into the rest of your life. That's what we see in the last verse here, that we're called to engage life's toil as God's calling. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. This speaks comprehensively. To the legitimate works that fill our lives. Notice it's vague. He doesn't tell us what kind of work, what kind of labor. Because he wants us to, to take in with our eyes, with our hearts, everything we do. Our manual labor, our studying, our learning of a new hobby. Household work, child rearing, comforting those who mourn, exercise, entertainment, dreaded chores. Whatever it is that your hand finds to do. Now, of course, Solomon's not saying... Also your sinful works, also your rebellion, of course. God's work clearly 
condemns acts of sin. But whatever you might legitimately do, do these things, says Solomon, with all power. Don't hold back in the work that you do. Don't do it half-heartedly. That's a temptation in human hearts, isn't it? Kids, your parents give you a chore and you don't really love it, so you just kind of do the, you know, go through the motions. They say, you know, clean up the entryway. And you're like, all right, throw some shoes in a corner, sweep up the obvious mess, I'm done. No, he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Do it with all your power. Don't just do the bare minimum. Do the best you can possibly do. If it's worth doing, do it 100%. Why? Because there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave. Now that seems unexpected. But understand what this wise king is saying. In Sheol, in the grave, our works under the sun, our works in this world in its current form come to an end. There will be no work of the hand because the hands have died. There will be no appreciation of our might because the might of the physical body will have ebbed away. That's true of all who die. Whether the righteous or the wicked, the bad or the good. Because we all die, Solomon wants us to see the importance of working wholeheartedly while we live. God has given this life that we might use it. This is the place where we are called to exercise the talents God has entrusted to us. Now is the time for applying our skills, for enjoying our strengths. And when we die, that time of working will end temporarily. When Christ returns, He's going to make all things new, including our bodies. We'll be able to serve with a power and a precision and a goodness which we could never begin to equal here in this broken world. But here's the thing. There will be a different character to that work, a different quality to that work, and a different intermediate end. Ultimately, the end of all our works is to glorify God. But the intermediate end then will be that we might develop those gifts in the midst of our absolute perfection to give Him the glory that He deserves. Today, our works are meant to train us and guide us and teach us how to serve God, how to love Him, how to be His children. So knowing that God has given those gifts into your hands and has set that work before you in order to train you, in order to build you up as His children, that's why He gave them. That's what our purpose is in this life, that we might learn how to live as His children, that we might be equipped for all eternity to come. Therefore, do what you do with all your might. That's our calling. Don't do it half-heartedly. Don't just try to get through. You might not love your labor. You know what? I don't know. I've had a few different jobs in, in my life. And I've enjoyed every one of them in some aspects. And I've hated every one of them in some aspects. But it doesn't matter what the labor of your hand is in a given day. He says, do it with all your might. Why? Because God has given it. And God has given it precisely to bless you, to build you up, to equip you, that you might learn how to live as His child eternally. So do it not just with all your might, but with all your joy. Children, maybe you hate writing that essay or you just despise that math homework. 
Do it with all your might. Because God is using it to train you up and to build you as His child. And it will bring eternal blessings if you do it with all your might. In fact, the Lord says that that's exactly what we must do in all that God sets before us. Jesus said in John chapter 4, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. That, that fed Him to do what God set before Him to do. And in Colossians 3, verse 23, we're urged, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. When we do our work with all our might, we serve Christ, we reflect Him to the world, we gain an equipping that will serve us eternally. And really... That's the lesson throughout this text. God wants us to learn to glorify Him in everything we do in this life. And that means celebrating everything He has given. The blessings we were made to enjoy, the comforts that we're called to embrace, even the toil in which we're to pour out our power. He gave it all and He gave it all for our good that we might learn to live before Him as His children and that we might give Him glory. So as you go your way this day, as you go your way this day, don't feel guilty about taking time off your work. Don't feel miserable about the fact that you enjoyed your pumpkin pie with real whipped cream. But fill your plate and eat your food and drink your wine and enjoy the fellowship around you. Looking to the one who gave it all and celebrating the great gifts he has given, including the greatest one, Jesus Christ, who has made us acceptable in his sight. And then filled with that joy and nourished by that food, go forth into the rest of your life enjoying its comforts and also its toils with your eye on the Lord and your confidence in the fact that He is going to use it all to disciple you, to change you, to make you to be the children of God that you were meant to be. And if you do that, God will be glorified and your joy will be greater than any joy this world could possibly ever know. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, You are so gracious and good to give us in this life all the things that we need that we might learn to love You and serve You and to become the, the servants of God that You have made us to be. Father, we pray that You would help us to do that today. Feasting not in order to gain joy, but to demonstrate the joy that we have in Christ enjoying the comforts of this life as a gift from Your fatherly hand in love and toiling, working with all our strength that we might use to the fullness this life You've given to us. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.